Welcome to the Sunday morning podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Burgess Hill. This message is by Colin Squires. We have uh, been spending the last few months in the book of Ephesians, and this is actually the 10th of 11 messages uh, going through through this book. But do you remember week one? Do you remember why was it that, that God said, go through the book of Ephesians? Does anyone remember? I'll recap it then, shall I? Um, God said, go through the book of Ephesians so that the church may be encouraged, built up in faith, and really know the hope to which we're called and that sense of purpose. And I believe that's what God wants to do this morning particularly, is just as we're coming into land with the book of Ephesians, is remind us, I just want to you built up in your faith, in your purpose, in who you're called to be. And I uh, believe that's what God wants to do today. Amen. And I want to just start with a little bit of testimony, and it will all make sense as we uh, open up the, the word this morning of where we're going. And don't worry, the testimony this week is not so quite as raw as last week, so nobody has to cringe too much. Um, Kate and I got married in 2014, but before that, I was a happy single. Uh, life may have had its, its you know, issues, we talked about some of them last week in fact, but I was satisfied in God. I wasn't looking for a, for a partner or anything like that. I was just happy, just me and Jesus. I loved being available for anything he needed, any time of day, day or night. And, uh, and I was just so satisfied and complete in him that I remember praying, Lord, I think I'd like to get married one day. But do you know what? If you call me just to be with you for the rest of my life, single and celebrate just serving you, I think I'm okay with that. Because my whole sense of satisfaction was just in God. And I praise God for just him revealing himself as that for me. So I was a happy single. And then I met Kate at Bible College. You know that moment where your eyes, have you ever experienced this? Your eyes meet just across the room. And in that moment, you just know that wasn't what we had. Um, <laughs> our eyes met across the room and it wasn't love at first sight. At best, I think it was maybe indifference at first sight. We were just, we just kind of, there was no interest. There was no spark there. Um, we were just, did though, become friends. So I was a happy single, and then I met Kate, and nothing changed. Um, and we became good friends. She lived around the corner from me. We'd hang out in groups together. I really appreciated her friendship, but it was never more than that. In fact, she was very clear with me it was going to be nothing more than that. Uh, she, she shared this recently when um, uh, God was really speaking to her about the importance of the way that she was relating to members of the opposite sex. Didn't want there to be any kind of misconstruing her intentions. And she texted me one day. I knew that God was speaking to her about that, but she texted me one day and said, just wanted you to know uh, that I don't fancy you and I never will. <laughs> and I was living with Nick Jordan at the time, my housemate, and she said, oh, and can you tell Nick too? <laughs> Nothing like being to the point, hey? Uh, but as, uh, as we got to know each other, we, we did, our friendship deepened, but it was never more than that. And then she moved away to Birmingham to go to university. And about a year later, we hadn't been in touch really for a year, she came to visit and I said, oh, hey, it'd be really nice to go out for a drink, have, a, have something to eat, catch up a bit, see what life's like in Birmingham. And do you know what? There, in that, in that restaurant, it was like my eyes were opened. And I went, how have I never seen this before? You are beautiful and you're funny and you're engaging and you're smart. Not, I didn't, I'm not saying I didn't think she was any of those things before, but um, 
But sorry, yeah. my love. But my eyes were just opened in a different way. But I thought, do you know what? She's going to move back to Birmingham tomorrow. We probably won't see each other. She's got two more years of university. Who knows where life's going? Ah, oh, well, I'm happy single. I don't need anyone. I'm not like, oh, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. I was just like, Jesus, ah, oh, well, you know. But then, the next day, came the phone call. And, uh, and I picked up the phone. And I think the conversation pretty much went like this. Oh, hi, Kate. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> you better not be doing what you did to me the other night with anyone else. I don't know what your intentions are, mister, but you certainly co co you're certainly communicating something quite flirtatious. And you better not be doing that with anyone else because that is not the call of God for you. <laughs> oh. And you better not be communicating that kind of thing to me if that is not your intention. And I know, I know what you're saying, not what you're thinking. Probably what was going through my, my mind was, whoa, high maintenance. <laughs> but no, but no, what was going through my mind was, wow, here is a woman of noble character. Here is a woman who cares more about my discipleship after Jesus and what my witness to Jesus will be to others who cares more about her pursuing God and her heart being right before God than whether or not I fancied her or any flirty feeling or anything like that. And that to me, I was like, oh, the, the meal was nice. My eyes were opened. But when I saw that in her character to that degree, I'm like, that is worth pursuing. Here was a woman who would not settle for our relationship merely pointing our hearts to one another. If the way that we related didn't point to Jesus, or if the witness of the, our relationship didn't point others to Jesus, it was not worth pursuing. That was precious. And it was that phone call that actually started me, my pursuit of her. Um, beauty is fleeting, but a wife of noble character is hard to find. And so I was, uh, I was, I was hooked at that point. <laughs> and so this began this journey for us. And it was a journey where every step of the way, we were both more than ready to lay this down. Jesus, if this is not going to help us together in our pursuit of you and our mission together to, to demonstrate you to the world that is so desperately in need of you, we don't want it. But if, if you're in this, we want it. And there were couples, Pete and Sally, who many of you will know, uh, Sam and Ruth really helped us just make sure that that was at the forefront of everything we were thinking about. Because God was really speaking to us about purpose. One day I remember praying, God, what, why us? Why do you want to do this? I'm happy to serve you single. Why do you want to do this? And, and God gave me this picture of us stood together, face to face, close together. And Kate was, she had somehow had, was holding my heart. And yet though her hands were holding my heart, at the same time I was holding up her hands in this picture. And I felt God say, I've called her to help make sure your heart stays soft and pointed to Jesus, to bring healing and, and keep it pliable, keep you soft-hearted. And I'm, I'm calling you to hold up her hands, to champion her, to take hold of every victory that I've got for her and to keep her hands lifted in worship, to keep her eyes focused on Jesus. And it was this, this, mark, this would mark our marriage. We still talk about it sometimes today. Now, if things are difficult, we remember, what is the purpose of our marriage? And that purpose has carried us through so much. It has marked us and I praise God for it. And it's that that I believe God wants to talk about today, the purpose of marriage. Now, historically, marriage and having children was the main way to significance for an adult. 
By getting married and having kids, you knew that your name would be passed on through your lineage, you knew that you would be remembered, and you knew you'd have security. When you were old, you'd have family members to look after you. Meanwhile, singlehood was seen as second class. Uh, there was, it, it didn't have much social influence. It was, um, it was just, it was not a desirable state. However, the Bible challenged this way of thinking. It taught that our security, both in this life and in the next, was not in lineage or family, but in God alone. In fact, it actually brought singlehood out of the basement, if you like, and at the same time brought marriage off of its pedestal and brought this wonderful balance. In the biblical view, singlehood wasn't any lesser than marriage. It was just, it was just as important. Jesus himself was perfect and was single. The Apostle Paul said, I wish everyone were single just as I am. He went on to say, an, un an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of, of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. He goes on to say that wives, are, uh, single women and wives are much the same. And then he goes on to say, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. He brings up singlehood and says, no, this thing is precious and worthwhile and meaningful and important in of itself. And marriage, similarly, next to it. This is summed up absolutely amazingly by Sam Albury, a pastor and author um, who, uh, and, and the founder of livingout.org. And he put it beautifully this way. He said, if marriage shows the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. I want to say that again, just let that sink in. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. In Ephesians 5.32, which is where we're looking today, if you've got your Bibles, open up at, um, Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at the end, kind of towards the, towards the end of our, our, our reading today. The Apostle Paul says, marriage is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Marriage was never meant to be this supreme state of being, of this loving relationship, of the thing that everyone should want to be in and come to. It's supposed to be a signpost to the ultimate reality of love. It's supposed to be this picture that points us to the ultimate intimacy, ultimate security, and ultimate fulfillment that is only ever meant to be found in one relationship, in our relationship with Jesus. That's why Jesus talks about, he teaches in the resurrection. There's no marriage in the resurrection or in the next life. You don't need that picture because in the, in the resurrection, we'll have the bridegroom himself. We'll have Jesus. There'll be the, the, the Bible is actually sandwiched with this picture of marriage from Adam and Eve at the beginning, the very first marriage to the wedding supper of the lamb at the very end in, resurrection, in, in Revelation. And there's this picture of the church, the bride of Christ, all of you, you and me, all of us coming together and being wedded to Jesus, becoming one with him. To quote uh, Sam Albury again, this, if this marriage is supposed to be his picture of this signpost pointing to this union with Jesus, singleness, he says, is a way of saying that because I've got that reality now, I don't need the signpost. It's like two sides of the same coin. Both point to something great, which is the complete fulfillment that we find in relationship with God. Marriage, a husband and wife coming together, point to the way we'll come together with Jesus. That's the shape of the gospel. 
in singleness, we're saying, I have everything I need in Christ and I'm fulfilled and I don't need anything more. And in that, it's pointing to the, fulfill, the, the fullness and the sufficiency of Jesus. And I think with this in mind, it's really important that we don't re-elevate marriage to some kind of idol. And I think in, in the West, in church even particularly, we have done that sometimes. Maybe not about lineage or about like, you know, fame, I'm going to live forever, light up the sky like a flame through my, through my memories of my children. But maybe through romance, of this idea that, that love is in marriage on earth is supposed to be this highest calling. But it's not, it is, it is in Jesus. Yeah. Only in Jesus is that supposed to be found. And I think there's, there's we, we, I was wondering we're going to go into that. We've not got time to go into that. But there is this, this beautiful picture in marriage, but it's not supposed to become an idol, the thing that we, we put first before anything else. And before we go any further and looking at Ephesians 5, I think it's where we're going to be looking at husbands and wives, parents and children, uh, masters and slaves and all that kind of thing. I want to recognise that we're not always single by choice. And I believe God was saying it's really important this morning just to take a moment to remember all of those whose spouses, parents and children are no longer with us. All those who've been such this wonderful picture of this union that we can have with Jesus who have gone on to be with the Lord. I just want to say, we, we praise God for everyone. We thank God for every couple who has been and isn't right now. But we praise God for that lasting impact and image and picture of what Jesus has done through every single couple. And if, by the way, that is you, and, and talking about this marriage this morning, talking about family, maybe you've lost a spouse, a parent, or even a child, then um, uh, maybe having opportunity to process that with others and with the Lord would be really helpful to you. We've got the bereavement journey course starting tomorrow. So if you'd like more information, please, um, please do come and ask at the info point. Now, although today we're going to mostly be talking about marriage, I want to ask you, if you're a single person, have you thought of that singleness as having purpose? Of having this witness to the sufficiency and just wonderful fulfilment that we have in Jesus? rather than it be perhaps if you've ever had a thought of I'm waiting for something else. It's not to say that there's something else isn't maybe coming at some point, but that well, where you are now is not having to be waiting for something. Where you are now is a picture of the goodness of God. Now, let's, um, let's open up our Bibles at Ephesians 5. We're, uh, we're continuing on from where we were last week. And uh, let's just read through it so we kind of get the context of where we are. And further... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of, the wife, of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the saviour of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so your wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. 
or they become one flesh, the NIV says. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now let's start with that word, submission. Now, to submit generally in our context today might not have the most positive connotation to it, um, but for God, in, in this picture, this is meant for our good. This is a, a picture of the spreading goodness of God as we're going to come and look at. But remember the context here. We started chapter 5 last week and it starts with this line, be therefore imitators of God. And it goes on throughout the rest of the chapter, these little lines of just what does that look like? It means living a life of love. It means have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. It means be careful then how you live. It means speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. It means always giving thanks to the Father. And it ends with this line, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this submitting to one another is that picture of imitating God. Jesus himself submitted to the Father. And this is for everyone, okay? We've started, we, we might, the, the word that sticks out in our minds might be wives submit to your husbands. But the line before says, submit one to another. This is for everyone. All of us are to be submitted. To one another, we read here, all are to be submitted to our leaders and, and those who are over us in the Lord, in the church, Hebrews 13, 17. All are to be submitted to our elders, 1 Peter 5, 5. All are to be submitted to governing authorities, Romans 13, 1. I think here I might also drop in that we're reminded in Scripture that do we submit because all of these people are always right? No. We submit out of reverence to Christ. We submit because in doing so, we are demonstrating something of the kingdom. Not because they're always right, but because it is the right thing to do. And all of us as children are to be submitted to our parents. Even Jesus demonstrated submission to his parents, we read about in Luke 2.51. And of course, ultimately, we all to be submitted to God, James 4.7. But what Paul goes on to do next, in these next uh, part of this passage, is to give some examples of what submitting looks like in three specific relationships. In marriage, in families, and in households. Or in our context today, perhaps we might say, in the business world. Wives, submit to your husbands as Christ submits to the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It is really sad today to see how this passage has been twisted. How there's been, throughout time, time and time again, throughout the history of the church, this has been used as an excuse for abuse, for a domineering attitude, for lording it over another. Uh, for exerting my selfish will over another and saying, no, God says it should be this way, spiritual abuse. And uh, this was actually the exact opposite of what Paul was doing when he was writing this. In writing this, he's doing these three things at once. I was thinking about this. Have you ever seen the movie? Um, uh, 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 I can't remember what it's called right now. Um, and they go a dream within a dream within a dream. And there's like these multiple layers. And, uh, and it's like he's talking about this surface level about marriage. But he's also talking about this picture of the church and about who God is. And he's also addressing cultural issues of abuse and this domineering attitude. And he's talking about, no, love her like you love your own body, husbands. This is, there is no... No room in here for any of that kind of, of, of abuse. And in fact, I want to make it really clear to you. If you, man or woman, are in a relationship where you or your children are in danger, please reach out. 
talk to somebody. If you're experiencing abuse of any kind, there is no room biblically for that to be excusable or okay. In fact, the opposite is true. So reach out, please speak to someone. If you're in danger, please find somewhere safe. Um, I know sometimes there seems to be this, this thing of I like almost need to be given permission to go, this thing is not okay. And, and pursue, pursue God in it. Pursue, get, get out of that situation and allow God to work in it. Now, sometimes the twisting of this has been a little bit more subtle. It's not been about like, you know, abuse or domineering attitudes or anything like that. It's been more read kind of this kind of way. Wives, submit to your husbands and then he will love you. And you see like it's a little bit of a twisting, but it's not what this is saying at all. In fact, if this is the case, it is no wonder that the word submission comes loaded with baggage for us today. But if we can grasp what this submission and headship is supposed to be about, it changes the connotation radically. Now, I want to quote here Dr. Michael Reeves, who's um, an amazing theologian, and, uh, and he's written a book, The Good God, all about the trinity of God. How does God relate as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together? And, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this quote. It's a bit of a big chunk, but it's so rich and so wonderful. I just didn't think I could do it justice any other way. So are you ready? Have you got your listening hats on? This is phenomenal. While the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, there is a very definite shape to their relationship. <laughs> Overall, the Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved. The Bible is awash with talk of the Father's love for the Son, but while the Son clearly does love the Father, hardly anything is said about it. The Father's love is primary. And that turns out to be hugely significant as the Apostle Paul observes in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Now, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, or the head of every wife is husband, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, the shape of the father-son relationship, the headship, begins a gracious cascade like a waterfall of love. As the father is the lover and the head of the son, so the son goes out to be the lover and the head of the church. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you, the son says in John 15, 9. And therein lies the very goodness of the gospel. As the father is the lover and the son the beloved, so Christ becomes the lover and the church the beloved. That means that Christ loves the church first and foremost. His love is not a response given only when the church loves him. His love comes first. And we only love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4:19. That dynamic is also to be replicated in marriages. Husbands being the heads of their wives, loving them as Christ the head loves his bride, the church. He is the lover, she is the beloved. Like the church then, wives are not left to earn the love of their husbands. They can enjoy it as something lavished on them freely, unconditionally and maximally. For eternity, the father loves the son. The father so loves the son that he excites the son's eternal love in response. Christ so loves the church that he excites our love in response. The husband so loves his wife that he excites her to love him back. Such is the spreading goodness that rolls out the very being of this God. Wow. Isn't that just amazing? It was just the picture of who the God of love is. This relationship within himself is to be a blueprint for us in marriage. So the wife's submission doesn't earn the husband's love, but it is a choice in response to her husband, who is to lay down his life for her as Christ laid down his life for the church. And that looks like something too. 
Life is not about the bachelor life anymore, like we talked about a bit last week. But it's, it's looking out selflessly for the best interest of my wife and my family, in loving them first and laying my life down. As husbands, we lay our life down. And as the wife responds in loving submission to the husband, so the husband is encouraged to lay down his life by loving, in loving sacrifice all the more. So one begets the other, and this mutual, loving, beautiful fountain poured out. One is stirring one another up to love and good works. And in it all, submission then is a choice. We choose to submit. We choose to lay our lives down. We choose to love. It is not about a feeling. It is a choice. But it is an action. And, but we, we also reap the benefits if we choose to do this. Now the problem comes when we turn this the other way around. Notice this does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit. It doesn't say, wives, make sure your husbands love you like Christ loved the church. The responsibility is put on the individual. We must never come at this with the attitude of, I will only submit when I see you loving me enough. Or, well, I'll start laying down my life when you start showing me some respect. (laughs) Our love for our spouse must come first and foremost from the source of love itself comes from God. He graces us for this and we need his grace. Amen? Amen. If you're married, think about this. How many arguments have come up because you're frustrated the other person isn't being or doing or loving enough in some way? They're not doing it the way that you want it or in your timing or the way you would like it. How often do we have a conversation that kind of goes, you're not being enough and doesn't go very well? How often can we use this as an opportunity to say, Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to lay down my life or to submit or to seek the other's highest good, to go, how would they like it? How can I do it for them? How can I think the best for them? And turn it the other way around and use it as an opportunity to be this illustration. Go in this, in my witness to my spouse and in the witness to the world around us, we're going to be a picture of this loving submission and surrender and laying down of life of Jesus. One important thing to note in this passage as well is that nowhere is there any comment on value. We're not saying, it does not say that neither husbands nor wives are more or less important than the other. It does not say women submit to men, but wives submit to husbands. In Galatians 3, 28, it says, in Christ there are no male nor female. There's no male or female. No one is greater than the other. They're just different roles in painting this picture of God. Remember we talked about um, 1 Corinthians 11.3 earlier about the headship um, and, uh, and that as the head of Christ is God, so the head of a wife is a husband. Does this mean that the father in heaven is more important than the son? Does it mean that the father is somehow more necessary or more valuable than Jesus or that Jesus is some way less than the father? No, of course not. And in the same way then, the wife is no less than her husband. And it's actually this theology, this understanding that was biblical, that was so radical to the ancient world. Now we've got to remember our principles and our laws and moralities are based on the Bible in in this country. Um, Sometimes it might not seem like it, but they really are. And they're ingrained, they're second nature to us generally. But to the ancient world, this was crazy. History shows us that it was exceedingly rare to find a large family that had more than one or two women in it. Because women generally were seen to be mostly superfluous. And abortion and female infanticide were common, uh, widely practiced, so to relieve families of the burden of having girls. 
To quote Michael Reeves again then, no surprise then that Christianity should have been so especially attractive to women who made up so many of the early converts. Christianity described those life-threatening ancient abortion procedures um, so it decried those life-threatening ancient abortion procedures. It refused to ignore the infidelity of husbands as paganism did. In Christianity, widows would and were, would be and were supported by the church. They were even welcomed as fellow workers in the gospel. In Christianity, women were valued. And if you look through history, wherever the, the gospel came into a country, it radically changed the culture and women were brought up to be this understanding of equal value to men. And, uh, and so any time there's this picture of like, oh, the Bible's chauvinistic, no, the opposite is true. It brought up the value of women, said, no, you are of intrinsic worth and value because you're created in the image of God. Um, and so there's, there's nothing here that's saying one is more important than the other. I just want to invite the, can I have the band up now? Because I just want to draw this to a close so that we don't have loads of time looking at all this stuff, but we have time to respond, to talk to Jesus, to come before him and say, what does this mean for me? So we find these instructions for Paul on how spouses are to be with one another. But the, it, remember, the most important thing we've said right from the beginning is the why, is purpose, the purpose of marriage. Have you ever asked yourself if you're married, what is the purpose of my marriage? What is it for? We've said it again, that, it, that marriage is, not to be, is to be an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. This is the key to understanding the rest of this section. This is not just biblical tips for a better marriage, but it's helping us to, be better, to better reflect the nature of God to one another and the world around us. A marriage is a covenant. It's a binding promise, just like the one that Jesus made for us in shedding his blood for us, the new covenant. Marriage is forsaking all others. It is living only for God. Marriage is in sickness and in health for richer and for poorer. So no matter what, just like in in life with Christ, no matter what storms come our way, he will stick with us through it. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Even sex within marriage is a picture of God's goodness. Verse 31 says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a quote from Genesis, it's from the very first marriage in the Bible, Adam and Eve with God himself officiating. And he said to all of the chimpanzees and rhinoceroses and, and giraffes, we are gathered here today in my sight, to present this man and this woman in holy matrimony. And, uh, and he said this, God said this, this word. Man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the word there, one flesh, the word one is echad. It's a powerful word which when combined with the flesh, with the word flesh means fused together at the deepest levels. It's the exact same word used to describe God in Deuteronomy 6.3. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, echad. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fused together at the deepest level. And in marriage, we catch these glimpses, this hint, this shadow of that kind of oneness. So the Godhead, we read about earlier, is not only just to be our blueprint for marriage, but the other way around. Our marriages are supposed to reflect this picture of the Godhead, of this spreading love of Jesus. Our marriages then, like singlehood, are meant for purpose and calling to display the glory of God as seen in the gospel. Timothy Keller calls it friendship with a mission. I love that. 
And we don't have time to, today to go into all of the other whys of marriage and there's so much. We do a whole series on just on marriage. But I appreciate we're not all here married today and that's not what God, I believe, wanted to say today is just about how to do marriage. But really to have it in the right place, to have it as part of our understanding of our witness, that it's not just this morning, may God bless marriages and may he use this in our thinking to, to just bring fresh life into marriages. But let it be part of our witness of why. Why are we here? Why has God put me in this place? And I want to ask you if you're married, what is your mission? How is your marriage painting a picture of the love of the Trinity or of Christ's love for his church, both to one another and to those around you? Perhaps we might need to ask ourselves in what ways maybe have we idolised marriage and what can we do to address it? Now, if we were to speed through the rest of chapter six, it talks about children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the Lord. It goes on to about slaves and masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. It's Paul doing the same thing. If you, maybe we could read this as an employee. Serve well. Do everything as though you're serving God. If you're a manager, don't exasperate your employees and like, you know, uh, point fingers at them and, and um, all that kind of thing. Don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. All of this is this picture of no matter who you are and where you are, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're a child, whether you're a parent, whether you're an employee or a slave, or it feels like you're a slave in your employment, or a master, or a boss, or a manager. Wherever you are in life, all of us are to be imitators of God. All of us are to be submitted, submitting to God, submitting to one another. And all of us in each of these ways are all together, bringing together this beautiful tapestry that is a picture altogether of the wonderful wholeness and oneness and sufficiency and beauty and love that there is found only in God. In the end, Jesus then came to show us what true love looked like. And in each of these relationships, we're to do the same, to show true love in each of these different states of being and positions in life, marital relationships. There's something here for us to apply in our imitation of Christ. Our response then, would you just stand with me? We've got time to take communion this morning and respond to God in this way that we're coming back to the cross. We're coming saying, Jesus, my whole life needs to be a picture of this picture, the bread and the wine, your body given, your blood shed, everything about me and my life, my marriage, my singlehood, everything, whatever, where I'm at in life. Jesus, let it be a picture of this picture. As we come to the foot of the cross again, we come to Jesus. Let's have that fresh submission. Jesus, wherever I am in life, I want to submit my will, my mind, my emotions to you, my, my finances, my household, my family, my marriage, my kids, submit them to you afresh and bring them before you. And as you're taking communion, I would encourage you, you don't have to do this, but I encourage you, if you're married, come together. Commit afresh your marriage to God. Husbands, draw strength from, the, from communion and this picture of Jesus laying down his life for us and ask for fresh grace to love your wife in this way. Wives, draw strength from Jesus' submission to the Father in going to the cross and, uh, and laying down, submitting his will to the Father in Gethsemane and ask for fresh grace to love your husbands in this way. As a couple, recommit to your purpose. Pray together about how that should look in your world and how God may want to use your marriage. 
If you're single, perhaps thanking Jesus for his sufficiency and asking how your life at the moment can reflect that to your world. And the same if you're a parent or a slave or master or employee or manager or whatever. All of us can ask God for a submitted heart to him and to one another. And if there's anyone that you need in that submission, you need to have a conversation with or you need to forgive in your heart and encourage you to do so. So you can, you can come get, uh, take part in communion. Jesus, we just thank you for this. We thank you for your, for your body that was given for us and the blood that was poured out, shed for us and for many for the remission of sins. Jesus, we bless it and bless it to us right now. And so as you come, you can worship, you can come take communion, come pray together. And if you would like prayer, I'm going to be at the front and, and Pastor Eric, Pastor Clive, um, Pastor Jen will be at the front here. We'll, uh, we'll just be here just to pray with you if you want some specific prayer. But right now, Father, we thank you. Just would you come here by your spirit, minister to us, show us what this submission and mutually into one another and to you looks like, that we may be a church, that in every state, every one of us, whatever we are, wherever we're at, we, have, we just paint a beautiful picture of how good Jesus you are. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources from Kingdom Faith and our other audio and video podcasts, please visit www.kingdomfaith.com.